0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in History on the History Channel of the New Books Network. My name is Lane Davis, and I'm your host today. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Mark Wild. He's professor in the Department of History at California State University, Los Angeles, and the author of Renewal, Liberal Protestants and the American City After World War II, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2019. Uh, Dr. Wahl, congratulations on your book and welcome to New Books in History. Thanks, Lane. Thanks very much for inviting me on the show. Absolutely. Well, before we get into the book, why don't uh, we start by just having you introduce yourself a bit more, explain how it is that you came to this particular topic uh, that you wrote about.
0: Well, my academic interests have always sort of revolved around how people who live in sort of diverse urban environments get along with each other or don't get along with each other, as the case may be. And that probably uh, derives from my childhood growing up in San Francisco in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, city was a very interesting place back then. And when I was in grad school in San Diego in the 1990s, um, there, a lot of the political debate in the region centered on uh, the changing demographies of the state. The census had made an announcement that California was about to become a majority minority distra- uh, state. And there were some accompanying policies and state propositions coming through the pipeline a buildup of border security, uh, new laws curtailing rights of immigrants, eliminating affirmative action, things like that. And so I decided to do my dissertation on. Uh, neighborhoods in early 20th century Los Angeles that were populated by uh, different groups of immigrants and in-migrants who were living among uh, each other for the first time and getting used to uh, thinking about uh, communities as being comprised of people who didn't necessarily share their ethnic or racial backgrounds. And one of the case studies I used for that Project was something called the Church of All Nations, which was started by a Methodist minister named G. Bromley Oxnum in 1919 or so. It was sort of the tail end of the social gospel era. And Oxnam really envisioned a, what he called an indigenous community center. While it was a church and what we might think of as a settlement house, he very much wanted the local residents to sort of take it over and to make it. Uh, their own type of institution and to let it serve as an embodiment of a kind of multicultural, pluralistic uh, institution that the the city could build on more generally. Um, And studying that uh, sort of brought back a lot of memories about my childhood in San Francisco because growing up as a church kid in an Episcopal congregation and seeing some of the other higher profile congregations around the city, this, this was also a project that a lot of other uh, religious bodies and big and engaged in at a time when San Francisco was really going through some social convulsions and, uh, a lot of very interesting social movements emerging out of it. So that led me basically to the project that became Renewal.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Well, let's, uh, let's dive into the book then. So in Renewal, you shine the spotlight on uh, liberal and mainline Protestants in the 20th century, and a lot of their hopes and their doubts that were involved in restoring mainline Protestantism to a, a, a really a central place in the 20th century American city. So I guess let's just start with the basics. Um, who and what exactly are you talking about when you talk about liberal and mainline Protestants? And what was it about the American city that caused so much anxiety during this period that you study, but also uh, was responsible for some remarkable efforts at ministry and church growth?
0: Yeah, well, you know, the the people that we're talking about here, there's no real perfect term that encapsulates them. I ended up going with liberal just because I think it's the most familiar kind of term uh, that we have. But basically, we're referring to people who were either members or came out of uh, the mainline denominations that we, we think of as comprising uh, liberal Protestantism during the 20th century. So Methodists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, American Baptists, Lutherans, uh, Congregationalists, uh, those, those types of groups. And this, these, were, uh, these were church bodies that had sort of flourished in the early part of the American Republic, Uh, especially among European Protestant immigrants, uh, especially in towns, especially in relatively homogenous communities. But as the demographics of the country changed, uh, a lot of them migrated out of the central city. And by the time you get to the World War II era, uh, many of them are beginning to become extremely worried about their fading presence in large metropolises. Most of their populations, uh, which had always sort of migrated, as cities had grown, had moved uh, into what were uh, becoming really formal kinds of suburbs—not streetcar suburbs anymore, but really post-war suburbs. And uh, a lot of the, a lot of the renewalists, as I call them, I sort of had to. The, I didn't invent the term; it was a term that was used kind of sparingly during the '50s and '60s. But I've I've sort of expanded it to include a lot of these people uh, who decided that. Uh, Uh, Protestant churches, liberal Protestant churches needed to devise new kinds of ministries that would appeal to the people living in central cities, people who didn't necessarily come out of the traditional mainline Protestant background, but whom these folks felt uh, deserved to have an institution of that type uh, ministering to them and speaking for
1: them. Hmm, Excellent. So your book, then it starts chronologically, sort of at the end of the progressive era, sort of after the height of the social gospel movement. And you write in chapter one that groups of Protestant leaders at that time, and I'm quoting here, wanted to use social science and planning techniques to build a unified church that could minister systematically and comprehensively to an increasingly diverse and fragmented American city. Uh, You note a figure like Harlan Paul Douglas as a key leader of that movement. Maybe tell us a little bit more about Douglas and sort of the type of church leader that he represents uh, during this period.
0: Yeah. So Douglas was one of a number of what became known as church planners. Uh, there's a kind of new sort of profession that emerged in the early 20th century. And there were a couple of things going on with the liberal Protestant community that led to this. First of all, I think there was this emergent ecumenical movement and ecumenism, especially as it Travels throughout the time period that I'm following begins to evolve and uh, change in in different ways. It doesn't have a static meaning. But one of the things that people like Douglas were particularly concerned about was what they saw as the fragmentation of uh, liberal Protestants. So many of them were divided into these different denominations. A lot of churches seemed to be competing against each other. There seemed to be a lot of wasted resources. Some of the early church planners would talk about. Uh, over-churching neighborhoods that had lots of little tiny churches competing for similar groups of people. And so part of the church planning process, as it emerged, uh, both within and across denominations, was the idea that we could bring some rational order to that process, that there was a way in which the different denominations could coordinate um, even more than they did uh, in some of these early parts of the decades to, to plan out uh, the placement of churches, and and to then, and the second part of this was to expand the role of churches to speak more directly to not just the spiritual health of uh, an early 20th century urban community, but also the social and material health. Uh, and this is obviously the social gospel influence, the idea that uh, churches need to cater to all aspects of, of people's daily lives. And so church planning uh, began to embrace some of the modern ideas about architecture and urban planning that were emerging during this period and trying to apply them to the religious dimension. So that became a big thrust uh, and an influence on the subsequent ministries that I looked at, uh, because a, a lot of these people thought that borrowing from these modern social scientific techniques, they could create an institution that was structurally superior to some of the other congregations they saw around that they didn't think were serving people's interests very well.
1: Hmm. Now, it, it seems that as the, as the renewalist movement uh, moved along in the 20th century, um, you talk about the role of, of neo-orthodoxy as a specifically important theological framework. Maybe first explain how you're using that term here, because I, I do know neo-orthodoxy can be somewhat of a debated theological term, uh, but then talk about why you, so, you see that particular theological emphasis as being so important for these church planners and these revival, renewalists.
0: Yeah, the neo-orthodoxy has a lot of different meanings and aspects to it. And the, the one that I really fixed on, because I think it came to define so much of what uh, what these ministries that I've looked at ended up organizing themselves around, was the idea that uh, human institutions will inevitably fall short in trying to create uh, a morally perfect society, That that Humans cannot uh, reach what God does uh, in in their moral lives, and certainly not in their social moral lives. And this is an idea that really comes out of Reinhold Niebuhr, who was one of the most sort of well-known exponents of neo-Orthodox theology, uh, even though there were different kinds of it, and and he argued with other neo-Orthodox theologians. But uh, his book, in particular, Moral Man and Immoral Society, kind of summarizes this argument that we might have people achieving redemption at an individual level, but at a social level, uh, there is always going to be some level of failure or sin uh, by uh, as a result of people's uh, uh, individual partisan interests undermining efforts to promote the social good. And so the the Renewalists uh, who proceeded out of this idea, and a number of the earlier ones were students of Niebuhr at, at Union Theological Seminary, um, were were to some extent, we're looking at the institutional church as a source of some of the problems and trying to devise new kinds of ministries that were not only structurally superior along the lines that Douglas talked about, but also theologically superior, overcoming some of the prejudices and failures that they saw in the institutional church. At the same time, they recognize that they were always going to fall short themselves. So the culture that emerged out of this process was one of constant self examination and self criticism. And they were, they were very, uh, always thinking about what they were doing, always reflecting on what they were doing. Uh, They would have long conversations about where they were falling short. And then a lot of their innovation would come out of that process. It was an incredibly Facun process, because people would develop new ideas based on the criticisms of the ministries that they developed, and it really accounted for the rapid growth of this movement in the late 40s and 1950s.
1: Hmm. I, I think one of the most interesting stories that you tell in one of your early chapters is the story of Howard Thurman and the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco. I've noted that Thurman's been getting some, I, I think, much-needed attention uh, recently, not only in your book, there's a new biography out from Paul Harvey, I think. Uh, talk talk a, a bit about that congregation and and your study of Thurman and and sort of his role in this movement in particular.
0: Yeah, Thurman was interesting because to, to some extent, he's a bit of an outlier in the book. And I almost thought about not including this. Um, one of the reasons I did was that the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples, which is the San Francisco congregation that, that I really examine, Uh, as far as he's concerned. It was originally started as a Presbyterian uh, mission. Uh, Thurman did not found it. He was brought in by the founder, Alfred Fisk, who was a white Presbyterian minister and had approached Howard Thurman uh, in the 1940s. Uh, Thurman by that point was a very well-known figure, a nationally known figure and uh, an early sort of spiritual leader of the civil rights movement. And Fisk was looking for a, a black co-pastor to join him in this venture. Uh, congregational, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples had started in a neighborhood in San Francisco where uh, a lot of Japanese Americans had lived. And when they were removed from that area for by the internment policy during World War II, it became an even more diverse uh, community of African Americans and white migrants coming in. Uh, to work in the defense industry. So the idea behind this original congregation was to develop an interracial ministry, uh, something that wasn't unprecedented, but was a relatively new type of practice during this period. And when Fisk asked uh, Thurman if he could recommend a a young theological graduate from Howard or something else, uh, Thurman said, actually, I'd like to do this. And so he came in and uh, essentially displaced Fist, he really sort of took over the institution. And in the process of that, uh, he uh, dropped the Presbyterian affiliation, and he created this non-denominational interracial congregation that was built mostly around his more sort of mystical brand of theology, brand's not the right word, mystical uh, mystical version of theology that that he had sort of developed in his work, and it became... This international phenomenon. He, he got support from all over the world, and that really helped to buttress the profile and the outreach of this community. And became it became, uh, it became a, a sort of beacon for a lot of people who thought that the church could provide a model of interracial fellowship uh, at a time when a lot of people were despairing about the the moral um, the the moral values in America uh, because of. Uh, the racial tensions that were emerging uh, around the country, uh, particularly in cities like San Francisco that had a lot of defense migrants coming into work. And so that that, that church became uh, uh, kind of a touchstone for a lot of people in this movement as it was moving forward. Interestingly enough, though, it was not a model that ended up being copied very much. Uh, Thurman's, Thurman's approach sort of stayed mostly within his own congregation, and when he left in the mid '50s, uh, that that church languished for a little bit. Uh, it's it's revived since then, but doesn't have anything like its former profile.
1: Hmm. Well, let's pick up a, a bit on some of the the racial tensions that y- you've mentioned. You note that in the 1950s, um, just as the social gospel proponents had found this common cause with developments in social science the church renewalists of that time seem to find common cause with urban renewal programs in a number of cities. Maybe talk about that that dynamic and specifically highlight how concerns of race and ethnicity played into uh, these these concerns.
0: Yeah. And initially there's a very strong uh, affinity among these church renewalists that I'm talking about and urban renewalists. Both of them Uh, began to speak in similar language, and that language, you can see that, especially from the church perspective, you can see them adopting the language of the secular urban renewalists as they start to think about what they want to do in the city. And this is part of the growing ambition, I think, that emerges among church renewalists about uh, what their work can do. Initially, they had really approached the project as finding a way to develop ministries or congregations that were more suited to post-war urban areas. But then very quickly, they begin to see themselves as part of a broader project that is going to renew the entire city. And to think about uh, the ministries that they're developing uh, in relation to other parts of the city, wealthier parts of the city, uh, the broader ecology of the city. And so the types of ideas that, um, uh, that they begin to draw from begin to mimic uh, some of those from urban renewalists who were engaging in the same type of activity, but from a social and economic, purely social and economic perspective. And so, there's a lot of crossover uh, in the initial in the initial years where uh, church renewalists really embrace this process. They want to get involved in it. They want to be consulted uh, on urban renewal projects, and at the same time. Uh, the the architects and planners on the urban renewal side are looking to church people as as sort of obvious representatives of the communities that they're moving into. So there's this initial symbiosis uh, between the two groups of renewalists. And then, of course, over time, that begins to break down because a lot of these church renewalists begin to see what happens when some of these neighborhoods are upended, uh, when redevelopment begins to raise large swaths of the city and displace lots of people, displace lots of churches sometimes. Um, Church renewalists become aware that they lack some of the influence that they thought they had over this process. And over time, uh, larger numbers uh, of people in this renewalist community sort of turn against urban renewal, become its opponents, and begin to take up some of the criticisms that Uh, the Black and Latino residents of these communities had had really originated and mounted against uh, the government planners. Hmm.
1: Now, in your chapter on the holistic church, uh, you note that the mainline Protestants felt that they had a real advantage over uh, specifically Jewish and Catholic efforts in terms of reaching out to urban communities. uh, And you you say here, and I'm quoting, Protestantism's social and racial demographics approximated that of America as a whole. Only the mainline had the capacity to represent that interest without compromising the rights of non-Protestants. Now, on the one hand, looking back from our vantage point, this seems like way overconfidence in terms of what Protestants were actually able to accomplish in, in urban environments. But at the same time, of course, this was a period of very high Protestant enthusiasm. So maybe the question is, tell us, uh, how, did, how, how did you see these Protestants viewing their own sense of identity and mission specifically during the 1950s and 60s? And then I was really fascinated about some of the big ideas that came out of the mainline bureaucracies of this time that you note in this chapter. So maybe just kind of talk a, a bit about that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, you. this term hubris is a good one because uh, on on the one hand, these renewalists are approaching this project with a lot of modesty that emerges out of that neo-Orthodox framework, but they still have this sense uh, that um, what, we, what we might still call the Protestant establishment, the idea that Ah, uh, these mainline Protestants have a unique uh, or special connection to uh, all sort of elements of, of social and political life in in the in the country. There's still this idea that that pertains. So when when they're talking about their unique ability, what they're really getting at is this sense that Protestantism, and not just in the mainline denominations, but more generally, Extends through lots of different uh, ethnic and cultural communities, especially the black community, uh, which is, is migrating to cities in large numbers during this period. There, there was a, a great sense of enthusiasm, uh, largely unwarranted among these renewalists, that Latino migrants to uh, American cities were going to be giving up Catholicism and would be amenable to Protestant outreach at least in the 40s and early 50s. And so when when these Protestants, these renewalists are, are thinking about their role in the city, what, what they're considering, first of all, is that they're a broadly representative kind of community or could be. And second of all, that they have connections to more traditional sources of power than Catholics or Jews do. That Protestants uh, have a strong presence in the summer in the suburbs, which provides a lot of funding. That there are connections to uh, leaderships in the academy and politics. There, there's still a belief that the Protestant network transcends all elements of society, and that that's the type of influence that they can bring to bear. That, in their view, Catholics and Jews cannot. Uh, Catholics, because um, they're they're too. In, in the Protestant's view, are too sectarian uh, The Jews because there's not enough of them, uh, that they're not present enough in the city. And so that that's where that sort of belief comes out of. And to, to some extent, as their experience with urban renewal shows, uh, one of the evolutions that takes place among their thinking as a gradual realization is that, that the influence they thought they had is not really there.
1: <laughs> right. Hmm. So, while progressive in many ways, uh, these renewalist movements—you um, you note that they often had the practical effect of marginalizing women in ministry. Why was that?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. And you know, some of the people who who have read this book early on have, have sort of suggested to me that there there were more women in there than I find, and I I feel like I've got to make a, an, a part of apology and an explanation about that. So when I took up this project. One of the things I realized very quickly was that the things that might be encapsulated under urban ministries were far too numerous for me to cover all of them. Uh, If I tried it, the whole project would have just devolved into basically a long list of different ministries. And so one of the decisions I made early on was I wanted to focus particularly on ministries that were geared towards reforming the the church structure that were, we're not just uh, activities that people might engage in, in an urban environment, but we're rethinking how the church in general would operate uh, in its totality in the city. And as I started looking through these ministries, one of the things I figured out very quickly was that all of the, domini- the denominations that I looked at had developed what they called urban offices uh, around which would a lot of these activities would center. And many of them, uh, or almost all of them, were led by male clergy. Um, while I was certainly looking around and hoping to find some that might be led by women, I didn't see very many. And there seemed to be some obvious explanations for that. First of all, the mainline Protestant clergy at this time was still overwhelmingly male. Um, most of the denominations were now ordaining women, but there were very small numbers. and Uh, most of them were not getting the types of appointments that might have led them to engage in this ministry. The second thing that became very obvious was that in some sectors of the Renewalist movement, at least, there was a pronounced bias against what was perceived as the overly feminine culture of the church. A number of these Renewalists really saw themselves as reaching out to men. Uh, They were especially interested, for instance, in going into factory spaces or developing economic opportunities for men and interpreted men's resistance to the church, sometimes in gendered terms, that, they, that working class men, immigrant men, black men thought that the church was too feminized. And so that led to a, a prejudice against efforts centered on women. Now, what I was missing when I was doing that, of course, was other elements outside the framework of urban ministry that might have uh, attracted uh, women or particularly lay women. So I think what happened was uh, a lot of church women who might otherwise have gotten involved in these areas went into the types of urban ministries that I did not cover because they weren't structurally organized. They might've gone into councils on religion and race or what eventually evolved in a human relations commission sort of, Uh, social active advocacy networks and cities. Uh, They might've sort of focused on the student Christian movement, something that someone like Hillary Clinton came out of, where a lot of people have noticed it was much more friendly to women's activism. So I missed some of that in there. Uh, It's not that women weren't involved in these processes, it's that they weren't involved in the types of ones that were involved with structurally transforming the church in the way that I was looking at. Now, if I could add just one more thing, there, there were a number of ministries that were designed as common life ministries that had uh, women as active members. And where I did find female leadership, it tended to be in those places. But what became clear when you look sort of deeper into those is that despite the language of equality that they promoted in practice, a lot of them reverted to traditional gender roles uh, in their operation. And there, there were one or two voices Uh, Among some of these women, often wives of ministers who spoke bitterly about that experience and felt that they really fell short uh, of their ideals. At the same time, there were a couple of other female ministers. Letty Russell is a prominent example. She later became uh, a leader in feminist theology uh, who used these uh, ministries as springboards uh, into their uh, church and, and, and later intellectual career.
1: Well, one of the things that I found really interesting, you note that in the 1960s, some renewalists had really begun to question the assumption that urban church work should be based on principles of reconciliation. And they they instead started to embrace uh, conflict-based approaches to to social justice ministries and and other types of ministries. And and many rejected the urban renewal projects of earlier years when it became clear that uh, redevelopment, I, I guess, was not Going to be done in the interest of the poor or the working class neighborhoods and their congregations. In in many cases, maybe talk about this confrontational approach. What what did it involve and what did it really look like on the ground?
0: Yeah. So so as this movement developed a little bit, uh, a lot of its participants and its leaders uh, were spending a lot of time trying to listen to the the people they were ministering to. They were trying to understand these neighborhoods and these communities. And I, and I should say a lot of the clergy who got involved with this were middle-class white people not grown up in the city uh, who were experiencing this for the first time. So there was a learning process that was taking place here. Mm-hmm. And for some of them, as as they observed what was happening, as they worked with people in the community, and particularly as they struggled to relate to them, as they started to realize that some of the liturgical and ministerial innovations that they were trying out weren't necessarily having the desired effect, uh, they, they began to sort of confront the shortcomings of their own uh, efforts and to see how what they thought could be a process that took place in a, in a more reconciliatory fashion uh, was not taking place from the perspective of the folks that they were working with. And they really began to adopt some of that framework. Um, And as they sort of looked around at some ideas to make sense of that, two of the sort of sources uh, of this new conflict model emerged from Saul Alinsky's Industrial Areas Foundation. Alinsky was uh, a secular Jew developed a model of community organizing that really placed the local community interest against the political power structure and sought to promote that as an organizing principle. And then the other one was black power ideology, uh, which began to move into the church uh, first, obviously through uh, the black membership of the main line uh, and then increasingly begin to have an impact on some of the white renewalists as well. So uh, what starts to happen is uh, conflicts emerge both uh, within the church, uh, as some of the more reconciliation-oriented renewalists begin to feud with more conflict-oriented renewalists. And then uh, as as the ministries themselves begin to uh, situate themselves in the larger political framework of the city, uh, a lot of them start to develop these more conflict-oriented approach when they're dealing with, let's say, the local government, Or the police, or other types of interest groups that are operating in the city. And that means that the group, as the movement as it's growing, begins to fragment in a lot of ways. You have different approaches uh, developing in different directions and sometimes running into conflict with each other, uh, even as the denominations are pouring more money into all of these activities, which is thereby sort of feeding the beast, so to speak, feeding, feeding the growth of these institutions and increasing the conflict among them.
1: Hmm. And, and I guess to kind of piggyback on that, you note an interesting trend uh, in which many of these urban renewal ministries not only embrace this conflict approach, but they also begin to step away from direct association with, uh, with a church or with any kind of religious identification. And at the same time, some of the leaders of these efforts begin to embrace secularization uh, and a greater role for the state. Uh, especially programs such as the War on Poverty coming out of the Johnson administration, things like that. I guess talk about that trend, and I'm especially interested in the what I would sort of see as the braided relationship of churches and the government during this period. Yeah, that's a
0: good phrase. I hadn't thought of that before. So, so the as more of these renewalists begin become frustrated with the church hierarchy, and in addition enamored with some of the other opportunities, financial and otherwise, that secular organizations are beginning to provide, Uh, a lot of them begin to think about distancing themselves from formal affiliation with with a church body. And this starts in particular with uh, ministries that might have started under the auspices of a single denomination. Uh, You see them start to try to re-identify themselves first as a more ecumenical type of organization, and then as not as a specifically religious organization. And part of what's going on is they're they're looking to develop other sources of support outside of the church, uh, other resources that will allow them to do what they want to do, and they feel that uh, diminishing their church affiliation is a necessary part of that. But they're also, along with that, and I'm speaking only about some of them, but there's a significant number here, uh, beginning to think that the theological and ecclesiological groundings that they see as being most important in this post-war period really require them to have some distance from old formal storage structures like denominations, like some of the, you know, traditional parachurch organizations that had already existed for a long time. And so you you see them, you see them start to take a foot out of the formal church and and to braid themselves, as you just put it, Lane, with other types of organizations like government. Uh, And that, that to them becomes not only a method of achieving a level of organizational independence, but also a way of interweaving the church into secular society. So secularization in this case doesn't necessarily mean uh, diminishing church influence to some extent, they would see it as broadening church influence, allowing themselves to step into some of these secular spheres and have an influence on them uh, without uh, sort of being encumbered by their formal obligations to the old church body. So they get very, very—they uh, find this very appealing, and they—they they really a lot of them really jump into it wholeheartedly, and that begins to. Stretched further, the the network of these ministries away from the, this older formal sources of support and into some of the newer sources of support that are are based in the secular arena. Hmm.
1: Now, to go along with this, you you note that some clergy and leaders uh, begin advocating for for secular theologies or ideologies to go along with it. Thinking specifically of the death of God uh, movement. Now, I, I it, it seems to me anyway that the, that the death of God movement has not had sort of a a long-lasting impact in the the academy but at the time it was certainly a very influential uh theological school T- talk about how those that theology specifically related to the the on the ground work that a lot of these groups were doing
0: yeah so to some extent these secular theologies of of which death of god a theology is one of them and i i still have trouble racking my head around that one in particular but the but the general idea as it was applied by these ministries And if I can step back for just a second, as the more we go through this process, the the more it became clear to me that uh, the earlier generations of renewalists who really thought very hard in theological terms uh, about what they were doing and tried to ground everything they were doing in theology, as as we start to move forward chronologically into the 50s and the 1960s when death of God theology uh, achieves its peak, the, the actual renewalists are, are not paying as strict attention to the intellectual structures of these ideas. They're, they're more drawing on them sort of instrumentally to support what they're doing. And I think the principal foundation of secular theology was that it was possible to be uh, a good Christian or act in a Christian method, even if you don't have much of a formal affiliation with the church, that you're sort of emancipated from all of the dogma as they characterized it and formality and liturgy liturgy that a lot of these folks saw as uh, hampering efforts to appeal to groups of folks who didn't want to deal with that stuff, uh, as they might put it, and wanted to focus more on uh, the material and purely spiritual emancipation that, that some of these ministries might afford. So you're, you're really, uh, as they understood it, stepping away from some of the, the baggage that they saw churches uh, and traditional church forms uh, bringing with them and finding a pure form of uh, religious expression that operated primarily in the secular sphere. Uh, obviously, the big intellectual expression of this was Harvey Cox's The Secular City, which came out in 1965 and really sort of crystallized this. He, he sort of thought that um, that, that Christianity uh, or religion in general would work best in the secular sphere and didn't need uh, religious edifice to affect it. That's what he was really saying.
1: Hmm. So you talked a moment ago about uh, the Black Power Movement as... Um one of the sort of uh, conflict-based approaches. Now, your chapter on renewal in the African-American Protestant churches really goes into depth into some of those tensions that were especially relevant for Black churches of the era. Um, You start by outlining the negotiations that a lot of these churches uh, had to make between mainline mores and the, the Black Power movement. I, I guess talk a bit more about that. What were some of the unique challenges of African Americans that were seeking to renew their congregations during this period? Yeah, that's
0: a, that's a great question. So for African American renewalists, we're, we're talking about a small portion of Black Christianity in, in the United States, at least in numerical terms. Uh, all of the mainline denominations had uh, a contingent uh, of African- American members of various sizes Methodist was the largest by far but there were others uh, like like the Congregationalists eventually the UCC that had sizable numbers as well and uh, the these black Protestants had always sort of occupied a, a kind of unique situation I think both within the mainline church and then within the larger community of black Protestants because, uh, they were part of these church bodies that were predominantly white. They were dominated by white people, uh, and they stayed there by choice, even though most other black Protestants had had long since moved over to black-controlled denominations. And so, the reasons for staying in there varied. And in, in general, mainline black Protestants tended to be more uh, prosperous uh, than um, than other black Christians. They tended to. Uh, on average, have more of a middle class sort of culture, uh, both in their literacy and, and otherwise. And so, uh, as, as the 1950s and 1960s progressed, and as the renewal movement in the mainline churches began to take shape, uh, a lot of these uh, congregations and black clergy began to occupy more prominent positions in, in, the, in the movement itself. And I guess when I say that, I shouldn't say prominent, I should say visible. They began to become more active and began to sort of assert their right to participate in the control uh, in the control of the direction that some of these ministries were taking because they were uh, often operating in their communities. And that, that set up the same kinds of tensions that white renewalists had, but in a different kind of level. Um, one of the differences, of course, was that black renewalists became more interested in finding connections with uh, black denominations. Uh, They became more interested in uh, finding connections with the civil rights movement or freedom movement or secular movements for black equality that were emerging during this period. And so just as white renewalists were trying to use the church to develop a more holistic type of urban community, so too, black renewalists were trying to develop a holistic community that was really more centered on uh, uh, the black population of these cities. And that led them into some of the same conflicts with each other that white renewalists had with each other. You had more reconciliation oriented black renewalists. You had more revolutionary oriented black renewalists who embraced a more conflict oriented type of ministry Uh, many of them were interested in channeling the church resources or more of the church resources into supporting black neighborhoods, but they often differed about how to do that. And so some of the same bureaucratic infighting that you see among white renewalists, you ultimately saw among black renewalists as they tried to jostle for control of some of these these resources. And that really crystallized in 1969 with something called the Black Manifesto, which was uh, uh, issued by a uh, by civil rights activist named James Foreman, which uh, excoriated uh, churches, particularly mainline Protestants, for centuries of complicity and slavery and racism and demanded a huge increase in allocations of church funds towards, uh, towards black causes. And uh, a lot of black renewalists in the church were very supportive of that idea in general, but they also wanted to make sure that they participated in the distribution of those resources. And so uh, they uh, began to um, uh, try to negotiate or challenge or, or an otherwise uh, jostle over control of those funds. And that led to a lot of conflicts as well. So I, I guess what I'm getting at here is that uh, the experience among Black Renewalists under this uh, under this process w- was not the same as White Renewalists, but there were some eerie similarities in their failure to achieve their visions.
1: Hmm. Well, throughout your book, you you offer such wonderful details on on the shape and the scope of these. Various urban renewal ministries. Uh, but but the ending of your book, I, I think, is is kind of a sad ending, if academic books can have sad or happy endings. But you, you write this, um, as i quoting here, after 1970, the renewal movement lost the ambition that once propelled it with such urgency. They accepted not only that other communities of faith had become equal or greater partners in the effort to redeem the city, but that religion had become subordinated to the overbearing secularity of modern urban society. And you also note some of just the feelings of fatigue that had settled into the renewal movements for various reasons and and the general decline in in mainline Protestantism that had really picked up speed in the 1970s. So I guess the question is this, in your opinion, how should we view these urban renewalists? Were they well-intentioned, faithful people that simply became overwhelmed by the speed of modern change? Or do you think that there was some type of flaw in the design of their program for the very start or something else? Well,
0: I mean, there's a couple of ways to answer that, Lane. I mean, I think one way is to try to understand what, what happened in the 1970s that, that really uh, accounted for the decline. And, and the, the first thing that, that you have to mention, and I suppose this comes under the flaw category, is that the renewal movement from an economic standpoint was always based on a source of support that uh, they believed they could count on indefinitely, but they couldn't. And that was the post-war prosperity that had benefited mainline denominations and their supporting bodies more generally. In the 1950s and 1960s, uh, the renewal ministries were really dependent on donations from churches or other supporting institutions. They weren't, for the most part, generating their own revenue, and they were not developing models of self-support that other types uh, of churches working in urban areas have developed. And so... In the 1970s, when inflation hit hard and really ramped up the costs uh, to denominations of supporting all churches, and when people started to leave uh, mainline denominations in droves, resulting in an overall decline in contributions, uh, the renewal ministries were some of the first to suffer that loss. So that that really exposed... Uh, uh, an obvious flaw in their organization. It just never occurred to them that they would have to think about these things, I don't think, until the 1970s. Um, to an extent, though, uh, if, if it's not twisting this too much, you can also look at that failure as more of an evolution towards the type of institution that the renewalists were pushing the church to be in general. And this takes me a second to explain. So let me see if I can do this in a coherent way. Um, a couple of years ago, I attended uh, a conference at uh, USC run by a center on civic religion. And they were talking about the, the, the sort of general characteristics of contemporary uh, religious movements, socially active religious movements in 20th 21st century Uh, American cities. And they used a lot of words uh, that reminded me of the direction that mainline Protestant renewalists were taking in the 1950s and 1960s and ultimately embraced in the 1970s. And that is to think of congregations uh, in in terms of pilgrim outposts, uh, not institutions that are connected to power structures, but institutions that are advocating on the behalf of disempowered people. Uh, institutions that uh, sort of adopt a prophetic stance towards structures of power, institutions that become harbors for people, uh, but not necessarily centers of power themselves. And for the attendees of these conferences, and they're not just talking about mainline Protestants. In fact, they're not even primarily talking about mainline Protestants. They're talking about other kinds of congregations. For for the attendees of this conference, these all spoke to the potential that these institutions would have, these communities would have to uh, support urban residents uh, through uh, the challenges uh, of 21st century urban life. This was really ultimately the same direction that uh, the Red movement took. Uh, Yes, it lost a lot of its strength. It lost a lot of its vitality. It certainly lost a lot of its confidence. But if you look today, at the way in which mainline ministries of this sort are structured, it's along those lines as well. And some people who participate in them feel that for all the diminished strength, uh, there is something somehow pure about the work that they're able to do now. They're not encumbered anymore by these expectations or by these funding requirements. Uh, the, their ministries, if they're smaller in scale, are nevertheless more effective by scale uh, because of that process. So I, uh, I didn't hit that very hard at the epilogue of the book, but thinking about it after it's come out, uh, perhaps I, I would have made that ending a little more, uh, positive than it otherwise was.
1: <laughs> well, Dr. Well, we thank you so much for your time today. Uh, before we, we go, maybe you could tell us a bit about, uh, what you're working on next. What, what projects are in the pipeline?
0: Uh, Well, so uh, in my professional career, I'm starting to move to more administrative tasks, which is going to take me away from doing an extensive primary resource project. Uh, As a historian, I've always been interested in in teaching students' history. I I work in a university that has a a large, very diverse working class, uh, predominantly Latino population. And so... What I'm working on now is actually a, a textbook of sorts that deals with historical methodology and that tries to look at how uh, people learn to do history, not just necessarily in the classroom and academia, but how the logic employed by historians also operates in other areas of life. And that's an idea that I think emerges in part over some of the work I did with Renewal. Uh, when you look at how uh, church people think of theology applying in non-theological contexts. Uh, I'm now sort of taking that idea a little bit and thinking about how historical methodology may apply in non-history contexts and how we can lose that relationship to uh, not only understand how professional historians do what they do, but how the learning of history can help us in other fields of endeavor. Yeah. So, um, Don't look for that to come out anytime soon. I'm moving very slowly, but that's what I'm working on
1: these days. Well, excellent. That sounds like a really important project. Um, Thank you. Well, Dr. Mark Wild, he is the author of Renewal, Liberal Protestants in the American City After World War II. It was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2019. Um, It's an excellent book, and I think that it really could find a place in a variety of classroom contexts from urban history to ministry studies in a theological school context. Uh, The book just does a really excellent job of painting uh, this picture for us. Uh, Thank you so much for the book and thank you for your time today. Thank you, Lane. I enjoyed it very much. And thank you for listening to the New Books in History channel on the New Books Network. Make sure to subscribe to our feed on all of your favorite podcast applications. Thanks and goodbye for now.